in the midst of all these things going on, here we are in John chapter 21. Um, I heard Pastor Jason's first sermon from John 20, and, a, and I didn't realize that we started on June 24, 2001, and so we began almost over five years ago at the Gospel of John. Here we are on the last chapter of John's Gospel. It is indeed a precious chapter. We'll be spending um, next two weeks, maybe three weeks, in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. <coughs> it is so important to me. I think if you um, understand this chapter, you'll understand a lot about um, what's in my heart and what, uh, what Cornerstone is all about, what we are pursuing, what, what our prayers are for, for, all, for each other and for all of us. Now, to fully and rightly understand John 21, we need to go to Matthew 26. If you'll briefly, just quickly turn there, Matthew 26. Three, three months ago, we spent some time in Matthew 26 as we studied uh, John 18 and Peter's denial. But just want to review it briefly. Um, look at the backdrop, the dramatic um, background um, that sets up John 21. Uh, Peter's restoration is John 21. Why is Peter being restored? Because um, before Peter denied the Lord. An event, an account familiar to most of us. Just way a reminder. Uh, let's go to Matthew 26. <coughs> it is again a very personal study. Um, Matthew 26 for me. Um, God used that chapter to break my pride. Break my arrogance, my independence, uh, my confidence in my flesh. Um, my first six years as a Christian, I mean, I really walked with a swagger. You know, I had a high view of myself, adequate view, I guess, of Scripture, and a nominal view of God, but a very high view of James Shin. Therefore, I was eager to talk. You want to listen? I wanted to talk. I wanted to preach. I loved to lead people and order people around. Um, because I just was so confident in, in my flesh. I was uh, a stubborn Christian, a prideful pastor, and a selfish husband, a deadly combination. And uh, then I studied the life of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. Some of you were there for, I think, six or seven years. We studied verse by verse the 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Verse by verse, week after week, putting Christ before us, it humbled our church, but more importantly, I guess for me, it humbled me as I saw firsthand the beautiful holy life of Christ. Just pummeled my heart. It just it, it it grew just chapter after chapter. My heart began to just get pounded and pounded, and then we came upon Matthew 26. When I studied Matthew's account of Peter's denials, it was one of those uh, semi-charismatic experiences. I mean, I was in Gethsemane. I was there at the courtyard. I could see with my own eyes. You saw the movie in Passion, the movie Passion. They got it wrong. You know, I'll describe to you what really happened because I was there in my study through Matthew 26. I was struck by um, how my life paralleled Peter's life and um, how pride blinded me and uh, I was living in sin as a believer. I saw that through scripture that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know who said that? 
Right? Peter said that, First Peter 5. Peter said that. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Where did Peter learn that? Matthew 26, when he denied the Lord. Um, I learned how, Job 5.11, how God sets the lowly on high. Um, Psalm 25.9, He guides the humble. Psalm 147.6, He sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. <laughs> I saw almost for the first time, Proverbs 22.4, Humility and fear of the Lord go hand in hand. What about Isaiah 57.15, For this is what the high and lofty one says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Isaiah 66.2 declares the Lord, This is the one I esteem. He who is humble. He who is contrite. Who trembles at my word. So, you know, God saved me at Romans 9. But God didn't begin really because of my sinfulness, that began the work of my sanctification until Matthew 26. It wasn't until Matthew 26 that I believe uh, my sin of pride was dealt with. My sin of pride. I was uh, a man boxing the air. I was running a race, I was running hard, running in the wrong direction. I was climbing a ladder, it was leaning to the wrong wall because I didn't see my own pride. And I was living out of pride as a Christian. I was ministering out of pride. I was preaching out of pride as well. Now pride is a very uh, difficult thing to, to see in one's life. It's one of those subtle sins. It lies under the radar. I mean, for you as well, you can't see pride directly. Um, but the way to see pride is to see its offsprings. How do you know if you have... Um, pride issue in your heart. Look for its fruits. Look for the manifestations. Consider the following symptoms, manifestations of pride. Let me, um, Pastor Stuart Scott has a long list of these uh, manifestations of pride. You can't see it directly, but if these symptoms are in your life, then more, more, than, more likely than not, you still have this sin that needs to be broken. Let me just go through... Uh, some of these with, with you together. The first one is talking too much. Proverbs 10.19 Talk too much. It's a symptom of pride. Proverbs 27.2 You talk too much about yourself. You're like Luke 18, that Pharisee. You love to talk about yourself, to pray about yourself, to boast about yourself, even in spiritual things, even about ministry, the things that you have accomplished, sign of pride. You are consumed with what others think. Galatians 1.10 You have fear of man. You want to be idolized. You want to be worshipped. You want to be envied by others in the world, even in the church. So you're consumed by the opinions of others. Or the other, other, other uh, symptom, on the other side of the spectrum, but it's still pride, is you're focused on the lack of your gifts and abilities. You're focused on what you don't have. It's false humility. It's really insidious pride when you're consumed with just your inabilities, your lack of things in life. <coughs> you're, high, you're oversensitive to criticism. 
you, you become angry at slight criticism or any kind of offense. You become devastated. You just fall apart. You come apart. Someone um, corrects you. You're unteachable. Proverbs 19.20. Right? Your favorite verse is Psalm 119.99. I have more understanding than all my teachers. That's your favorite verse. Right? So you have more understanding than your parents you know, who are you know, older than you, live life longer. You, know, you have more understanding than your older siblings. You have more understanding than your elders, your shepherds. You know, everyone, you have more understanding um, because you know, you're in college now or <laughs> you got your first job or something. I don't know. Right. Um, I think MacArthur said this, a mark of a good teacher is that he is teachable. Right. So, an unteachable man teaching is a dangerous thing. About being sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading with your words, Proverbs 12.18. Galatians 5.13, a lack of service. Lack, I'm not talking about ministry, but informal service. You don't see others' needs. Like uh, a woman is carrying a heavy bag and you just watch her carry that bag, right? You see your mom bringing in, you know, groceries from the car and you just look at her and, you know, go back to sleep. You know, you, 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 you see, you, you, you ignore, you just totally don't see all the needs around the house, at your workplace, your friends, because you're not a servant, because you're so prideful. A lack of compassion, Matthew 5, 7, Matthew 18, 23 through 25, you lack compassion for others. You're defensive, you blame shift. How about this, Proverbs 10, 17, you cannot admit you're wrong. You cannot say, I was wrong, or I'm sorry, forgive me. You'll hold on to the pride, to the end that you were right, even though you, you were clearly in the wrong. Uh, a lack of asking forgiveness. Lack of asking for forgiveness. Matthew five twenty three through twenty four. <coughs> and this was so difficult. I mean, I, I, I gotta admit, first few years in marriage, this was the most difficult thing for me to say to my wife. Honey, forgive me. Was the most difficult words. Why well, was so difficult? Because of my pride. It was easy to say, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. We're all sorry. I'm sorry I left the dishes on, you know, you know, on the table. I le- I'm sorry I didn't, you know, left my socks on the carpet. I'm s- sorry is easy. Forgive me is difficult because of pride. Uh, resisting authority, being disrespectful. First Peter 5 again. How about this? Philippians 2, 1, 1 through 4. Voicing preferences or opinions when no one is asked. Right. No one's asked your opinion. No one's asked your preference, your desire. But you love to voice what you think. Um, you minimize your own sin. Or you maximize the sins and weaknesses of others. Right. So you always compare others based upon your strengths. And your weaknesses you, you minimize. You justify. You rationalize. Or you maximize other people's weaknesses or sins. Uh, Ephesians 4, 31, 32, being inconsiderate, being impatient, being irritable with others. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, being jealous or envious. Matthew 7, 12, using others, right, using them for personal reasons, for work, for family, for ministry. About not having close relationships. <laughs> I think 25% of Americans said they have, 
they have no one to talk to, not a single friend. Right? I think other, other uh, 40% or 50% said they have one close friend. Right? They can't open up, they can't open their hearts, they can't have close friendships because of pride. They're unwilling to seek help when needed. Uh, these, this list hurts, right? It hurts me, I'm sure it hurts many of you. Because we think, well, I'm pretty humble. I don't really struggle with pride. I used to struggle with pride, but not anymore. And we see this list, and we see ourselves. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've got to say, I have a serious pride issue. Well, Peter definitely had a serious pride issue. We see that in Matthew 26. And we see how God dealt with his pride. Matthew 26 is late Thursday night. Our Lord had washed with his holy hands their sinful feet. Judas is gone to betray Christ. Our Lord has instituted the Lord's Supper. <coughs> and with the cross in sight, our Lord predicts not just the betrayal of one disciple, Judas, but our Lord predicts the betrayal of all of them. Verse 31, Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. You will all fall away is one Greek word, one Greek verb. Uh, it's skandalizo. When we look at the word scandal, something will happen to you, it will be scandalous. You will all literally uh, trip over. You will fall away. You will stumble because of me. Right? You're w- w- running this race and you will fall and you will fall over me. You'll fall away. And uh, Peter's response reveals his pride. Verse 33, Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. So in the Greek, the emphasis is in the ergon, never. I will never fall away. That is categorically impossible, Lord. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're getting delusional. You know, are you God? Do you know anything? You don't know my heart. You don't know my commitment, my courage, my willingness to live and die for you. I never will. And then he compares himself to the disciples. Even if all of them fall away, I never will. Yes, Thomas, he's riding the cusp of of falling away. So for you to say that makes perfect sense to me. You know, Nathaniel, John is kind of a tender guy, a sensitive soul, right? So he could fall away. But I am Petros, right? I am a rock. (coughs) Even if all fall away, I never will. He overestimated his love for Christ and he underestimated his own flesh. Um, Apostle Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians 10.12. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. Howard Hendricks is a professor at Dallas Seminary over 40 years of being a professor of all these pastors in training, he wrote in his journal, over 200 men were disqualified from the ministry. For the purpose of prayer, every time he heard of a former student who was disqualified from ministry because of sin, he wrote in his journal, for the sake of prayer. At the end of his life, he looked at the list of these 200 plus men who were disqualified from the ministry, and he noted one common trait that was present in all, all these men. Pride. They had a high view of their own 
own commitment to Christ. And so before pride, before our downfall, there's pride. Well, Christ responded to Peter, verse 34, I tell you the truth. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter, you'll never disown me. Well, let me tell you the truth. It's not never. It's not in 30 years or 10 years or one year. Peter, you will deny me this very night. Rooster crow was a designated term between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So Christ is saying, within a matter of five, six hours, (coughs) you will deny me, Peter, not once, not twice, but you will deny me three times. And then Peter is just blind. Peter is so um, consumed by pride. He, you know, like a mark of a prideful person doesn't listen. Poor listener. Like, man, won't even listen to the word of God. So prideful that they will contradict God's word and will say, God, you are wrong. I am right. You know, my opinion is true. My experience, my rationale, philosophy of this world is accurate. The word of God is just full of error. Peter, to Christ's face, man, the audacity. I mean, just think about this. But it's understandable. We've all, we've all been there, blinded by our own pride. Peter denies the Lord here. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Well, let's go to John 18. <coughs> In March, we studied this passage of Peter's three denials before um, servant girls, before you know, little teenage girls, how he denied the Lord three times. John 18:15. Simon Peter followed Jesus after his arrest in Gethsemane. So did another disciple, the Apostle John. That disciple was known to the high priest. John was known by the high priest, Caiaphas. So he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. <coughs> but Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl, verse 17, at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Right? And he replied, I am not. I don't, I'm not a disciple. I don't know Jesus. I'm just here. First denial. Servants, officers made a fire. Peter was with them, standing and warming himself. Go down to verse 25. He was warming himself, and they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Second denial. The third denial is the strongest, strongest denial. One of the servants, the high priest, a relative of the man (coughs) whose ear Peter had cut off, Malchus, did I not see you in the garden with him? Weren't you the one swinging that sword and cut off my relative's ear? I saw you. Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Matthew 26:75 says, "When the rooster crowed, Peter recalled to mind, "Today you will disown me three times." In Luke's gospel, 
Luke 22:61, Peter is the one giving the account to the doctor on Christ's life. So Peter tells Luke, when the rooster crowed, I remember the words of Christ. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. So across the courtyard, when the rooster crowed, Christ turned and saw Peter and their eyes met. I don't think Christ was looking at Peter to condemn him, to say, I told you so, you foolish, you foolish man. You know, you just fool, full of pride. I think his heart was to look at him with compassion, look at him with love, look at him saying, Satan asked for you, but I prayed for you. To sift you as wheat, but you will stand after that encourage the brothers. But when Peter saw Christ's eyes, <coughs> he was shamed by his sins. He saw his own pride, his own uh, arrogance, and he, Matthew twenty six seventy five said, <coughs> says he went outside and he wept bitterly. He went outside the courtyard, remembered his boast, his pride and arrogance, saw firsthand the shame of his own sin. And he wept outside by himself, bitter tears. Pastor J.C. Rao said this, This fall of Peter is doubtless intended to be a lesson to the church of Christ. It is recorded for our learning that we be kept from like sorrowful overthrow. It is a beacon mercifully set up in scripture to prevent others from making such a shipwreck. It shows us the danger of pride and self-confidence. If Peter had not been so sure that although all denied Christ, he never would, he would probably, probably never have fallen. It shows us the danger of pride. If Peter had watched and prayed when our Lord advised him to do so, he would have found grace to help him in the time of need. It shows us the painful influence of pride. These things are written for our admonition. Let us remember Peter and be wise. That's what happened pre-cross. Christ is crucified and he is buried. And before John 21, our Lord has appeared to his followers at least six times. He's appeared to uh, Mary Magdalene on Sunday. And then he appeared to the women on that day. He appeared to Clopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus. <coughs> John 20, he appeared to the disciples when Thomas wasn't there. He appeared to the disciples again, John 20, with Thomas there five times. And then in Luke 22, 24-34 it says, The Lord has indeed risen. He has appeared to Simon. Now, I, I don't understand. This appearing to, si to Peter is not recorded in any of the Gospels. Apparently the Lord appeared to Peter, but there was no dialogue. There was no exchange. So it's not recorded in the Gospel. Although, Peter has said, I have seen the Lord. This is the seventh time the Lord appears to the disciple, and that's in John 21. Our Lord, before the cross, <coughs> told his disciples 
to go to Galilee. Mark 14:28 After I have risen go to Galilee. Mark 16:7 Matthew 26:32 Matthew 28:10 Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee there they will see me. The Sea of Galilee was our Lord's headquarters. That was near his hometown. He's told his disciples to go and our Lord will meet him there. The first six meetings were all in Jerusalem. Seventh meeting will be at the promised location by the Sea of Galilee. Now before we get to the exposition of John 21, we have to ask, I don't have an answer by the way, but we have to ask this question. Why didn't John end this gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31? That's a perfect end right there. Right? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. (laughs) And that by believing, you may have life in his name. There is the purpose of John's gospel, that men might believe in Christ. Coming right after, Pastor Jason taught us, from Thomas, believing via sight, and Christ saying it's blessed for those who do not see and still believe. Perfect conclusion to John's Gospel. Why does he add another chapter on Peter's restoration? No one knows. There is no clear answer. But one hypothesis that I can somewhat agree and understand is, is this. The Gospel of John was the last Gospel to be written. It was written around A.D. 65-66. In A.D. 64, two apostles died. Okay? You guys know who they are? Okay. Right? He wrote Romans. Right? Paul. Paul died A.D. 64 in Rome. And Peter died in A.D. 64. John's writing this gospel over many years. He concludes it and Peter is martyred for the faith. He remembers being in Galilee and no one has told the church about Peter's restoration. Matthew didn't talk about it. Mark or right, Luke. Acts doesn't mention his restoration. And Peter died a unique death. Church uh, uh, fathers... Uh, even Josephus confirmed that Peter was crucified upside down. They wanted to crucify him right side up. Roman soldiers did this just for um, you know variety of spice of life. They are kind of tired of crucifying everyone the same way, so they um, practiced. They you know uh, tried different methods of executing people via the crucifixion, different body. P- body positions. So Peter asked to be crucified upside down so that no one would confuse Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, the Holy Son of God, with sinful Peter saved by Christ. John hears this and he remembers our Lord's prophecy that when you are young, you dress yourself. When you're older, someone else will dress you, indicating the kind of death through which Peter would glorify the Lord. So hearing this, John doesn't end in John 20. He includes an epilogue. A a, a side story that really 
ends the gospel so perfectly with Peter's life. Peter's restoration. And you know what's great? We'll study this maybe in two weeks. <coughs> Peter, um, you know, he's kind of a foot-in-the-mouth disease, right? He, he speaks and he thinks like three days later. So, he, he hears Christ's prophecy about how he will die. And he turns to John and he says, what about him? And our Lord rebukes Peter again. He says, if I want him to stay alive until I return, what is that to you? Follow me. And so helpful for me, I'm sure for you, on how we are to view prophecy. We can easily get into the things that are going on in Israel. Then they bombed, they, they kidnapped um, half the parliament of Palestine. The, the tanks are readied in the borders of Syria and Egypt. They did a flyby on the Syrian president's home. Uh, I mean, the war is going, and war and threat of wars are happening. <coughs> we can all get caught up in prophecy, end times prophecy, and study of Daniel and Revelation, get carried away. But here is what Christ says. Concerning the future, what is that to you? The imperative is for us to follow Christ. That's what he tells Peter. Don't think about what God will do with John or other disciples or in the future. The imperative is, Peter, you follow me. Calling all of us. We study prophecy, but more important than studying prophecy about what's going to happen is that today are we following Christ. So in light of that, I believe, Apostle John, seeing firsthand, hearing the reports of Peter's martyrdom, seeing the fulfillment of prophecy, seeing how he is really, and he will be the last apostle alive, adds this final chapter on Peter's restoration. Due to lack of time, I'm not sure how far we'll get, but let's get to the exposition of John 21. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. The Sea of Tiberias is the Roman name. Sea of Galilee is the Jewish name. Lake Gennesaret is the old Hebrew name. Uh, There's a Hebrew area called Kinnereth. They all refer to the same body of water. This is quite confusing, unless you you uh, you know this uh, simple fact that Sea of Galilee, Sea of of, of Tiberias, Lake Gennesaret, all refers to that same body of water in northern Israel. It is not a sea by any normal definition. It is called a sea by definition. In fact, it is a large freshwater lake, quite large, approximately 33 miles in circum- circumference, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. By the Sea of Tiberias, 7 of 11 apostles are gathered there, verse 2. <coughs> Peter's there, Thomas is there, Nathaniel is there, the sons of Thunder, sons of Zebedee, James and John are there. And two other unnamed disciples are there. Where the other four are is not mentioned, but these seven are there. They're waiting in Galilee for Christ. And Peter, the leader of the group, says, let's go fishing. I want to go. I'm going fishing. Uh, I don't think it's him returning really to his old lifestyle. I mean... 
some commentators say, it, it makes sense for Peter because after his public denial of Christ, his sense is, I am unfit to be an apostle of Christ. I am with these men, but it's just a matter of time. The heads are going to roll. You know, I'm going to get fired. Uh, the letter just hasn't come for me yet. When Christ comes, I'm going to get the mother of all rebukes. It's just a matter of time. So, you know, he's, he's got that old life nearby. And he says, I'm going fishing. And <coughs> also likely they're lacking food as well. And also they want to do something. Instead of just waiting there, they want to do something as they wait for Christ. Other disciples said to him, verse 3, We will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, early morning, Jesus stood on the shore. <coughs> the disciples did not know it was Jesus. They're about a hundred yards, a little more than a hundred yards away from the shore. A man is walking. They did not know it's Christ. Jesus said to them, Children, a term of affection. Do you have any fish? They, with unity, respond by saying no. He said to them, Cast a net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This is the only miracle after the resurrection of Christ. This is the only sign given after Christ's resurrection. And you might say, Pastor James, this sounds familiar. This happened before. And if you do, you get extra credit, right? Because you know your New Testament. You find this similar account in Luke chapter 5, when the disciples were fishing in the Sea of Galilee. Our Lord was teaching the crowds using Peter's boat. And our Lord said to Peter, cast your net on the right side. And Peter did. And what happened? They caught a large catch of fish. What was Peter's response? Lord, away from me, for I am a sinful man. When Peter saw the miracle that Christ performed, he immediately sensed the holiness of Christ, the deity of Christ. And immediately he sensed his utter depravity, his utter sinfulness. And he said, I cannot stand in the presence of God Away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Now, in John 21, his response is completely the opposite. When the miracle occurs, <coughs> John, and it's so appropriate that John would recognize that it is Jesus. John was the beloved disciple by the Lord. He was the one who was leaning on Jesus' chest during communion. He was the one who was at the cross. All the disciples fled except for John. He was there with the women. He leans towards Peter and he says to him, It's the Lord. Now, Peter in Luke 5 says, Away from me, I'm a sinful man. In John 21, what does he do? He had taken off his outer cloak, his jacket, because he was working all night. He puts that cloak on, verse 7, and he threw himself to the sea. Yeah, it's like he didn't dive in, he didn't wade in. He just threw himself in the water a hundred yards away from the shore. And what is Peter doing? He is swimming towards Christ. 
swimming towards the Lord. Other disciples came in the boat, dragged the net full of fish. <coughs> when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Our Lord was uh, meeting a practical need of the disciples. They were hungry. Our Lord wants to dine with them. Our Lord says to them, um, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Peter volunteers, verse 11, still dripping with water. He went aboard, hauled them to the shore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Now if you heard the sermon before, you know, here we go. Here it is again. But for me, it's an important point. Like, who cares how many fish that they caught? Right? 153. You know, why is that number there? Well, the main reason, the, the biblical reason is, John is saying, I'm an eyewitness to this event. I didn't hear, these are details that, you know, maybe, according to Pastor Jason, maybe women would share to other women. But when men share with one another, they don't share details like this. We bottom line it, right? So if John heard it from another brother, no one's going to tell him how many fish. But he knows how many fish they caught. Why? Because he was there. So he's giving details to, to verify he's an eyewitness of this event. But why count number of fish? Well, my, my interpretation of the white parts of the Gospel of John is this. The, the disciples are gathered together, eating breakfast with Christ, and Peter goes off to bring the fish. Instead of just bringing it over, he stays in the boat by himself. And what's he doing? He's counting the catch. Why? Because even though his love compelled him to jump in the water and swim towards Christ, once on shore, as he sees and looks at the eyes of Christ once again, he's reminded of his pride, his public denials. And he cannot approach Christ. So while they're fellowshipping over a meal, Peter recuses himself and goes to the boat and is by himself counting the fish. And he tells John, after he's done counting, we caught 153. He said to them, come and have breakfast. No one said, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And gave also the fish to them. Now, this is all the setup. Next week, uh, beautiful, right? Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Beautiful study. Peter's restoration. Um, do come back. Yeah, definitely worth your while. Just two simple lessons uh, from our study today. Um, the most inappropriate characteristic for a Christian is pride. Pride is a wrong garment for the believer. And the worst kind of pride is, um, let me call it Elder Bob, spiritual pride. Having pride in the world is one thing, but if you have spiritual pride, man, that's like the worst. Pride in knowledge of the Bible, how much you pray, how God has used you. You know, how much more godly you are than others. That kind of pride is the worst kind out there. It's the pharisaical pride. And you know the words that Christ had for the Pharisees. Uh, believers, true Christians, who especially know right doctrine, should be marked by this utter humility. Utter humility. So if you want to deal, really do a surgical uh, uh, um, 
precise surgery on the on, on, on pride and carve it out. Look at the symptoms. <coughs> the symptoms that we recounted today, go through them one by one. And uh, maybe invite accountability. Right? Ask your husband or wife, right? in, what, in what ways do you see pride in me? What symptoms of pride do you see in my life? Ask your small group leader. Ask your flock shepherd. Ask me, I'll tell you. Right? <laughs> set, set aside a few hours and I'll go through them by one. Right? Why? Because it's wholly not appropriate for believers to have pride. It should be marked by humility. Secondly, consider um, faith and non-faith or false faith. False faith or non-faith says, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Uh, a non-faith, false faith wants to be separate from Christ. Does not want to approach Christ when the Word of God is proclaimed, when church gathers, lack of faith or false faith or non-faith wants, repels Christ and wants to be far away and says, I want to pay for my own sin. I want to stay with my guilt. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll pay for my own penalty. Um, that's false faith. Look at John 21. Peter, I mean, denied the Lord three times. And yet he was a man of faith. Not perfect faith, not mature faith, but he had faith in Christ. So when he recognized the Lord on the shore, what did he do? He swam towards Christ as a sinner. That's what faith does. We come to Christ because of our sinfulness and in our sinfulness. We don't come to Christ because we're good. right? We don't come to Christ thinking that He loves us because we're good. No, we come to Christ thinking and believing that because He loves us, He'll make us good. He'll forgive our sins. So a humble man or woman who believes in Christ will go to Christ in the midst of sin, midst of weaknesses, in the midst of being unfaithful. Believers will still pursue Christ. Christians never excuse not pursuing Christ because of sins. And that's what non-Christians excuse. Christians never uh, justify lack of pursuit of Christ because of sins. That's what drives us to Christ. We see that in Peter's life. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, would you thank you for this Lord day, Lord's Day. What a joyful time of praising to you, joyful time of fellowship. What a sweet time of hearing the testimony of our dear sister Michelle and the work of salvation you did in her heart, granting her faith to believe and receive eternal life. Lord, what a humbling time seeing the pictures and hearing the sharing of a godly man who's laboring in the field in China and North Korea. And Lord, to see the life of Peter, to see the valley of his humiliation because of his pride, but to see also his time in the heights, dwelling with Christ, communing with him over a meal, and Christ's willingness to forgive sin. 
Oh Lord, we pray that you would do a deal a death blow uh, to our pride. It is not befitting children of God. Oh Lord, would you forgive us for um, wearing unworthy garments um, in your presence? May we put off uh, such foolish uh, things and put on the righteous, humble garments of Christ. And Lord, we pray that if there are any believer, any anyone here, any believer here that has strayed away and is far because of un- and is unfaithful and riddled with sin, oh Lord, would you prompt their faith and cause them to uh, swim and run towards you because of the love that you've given them, the holy affections you have given them uh, to pursue after you. There are any that are repelled by this truth. May you use this truth to open their eyes and show them that their faith is not genuine. If their faith was true, they would run to Christ and throw themselves at the mercy of Christ. The fact that they're repelled, the fact that they want to be separate from Christ reveals that there is no true faith. Lord, would you use this truth to convict their hearts and cause them hearts to be saved and cause them to believe and trust in you. We thank you, O Lord, for John 21. Um, may this valley of the scriptures, this, this sweet, precious valley, be a place where we all uh, dwell in and eat of its sweet fruits. In Jesus' name, amen.